0: Hi folks, Chris Foss here from the Chris Show dot com. The Show dot com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. Oh my God, we certainly appreciate you guys tuning in us uh, Refer the fr- show to your friends, neighbors, or relatives. Go to thecvpn.com, chrisvosspodcastnetwork.com. There's only nine podcasts there. I mean, like, how many podcasts do you need, people? But there's nine there if you want them. Uh, if you want to see the video version of this interview, you can go to youtube.com forward slash chrisvoss, and you can see all the brilliant authors we've had on over there as well. And uh, on that, you can hit that bell notification button so you get all the different uh, – in notifications of all the great authors we have on and everything we're doing. You can also go to Amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Chris Foss. You can see our shop that we have there of all the books of all the wonderful authors we have on the Chris Foss show. You can take your credit card there, swipe it, and you can buy all the books from Amazon, and you'll be so much more smarter and better looking for that as well. Today we have on one of the brilliant co-authors of the book, Blood and oil Mohammed bin Salman's ruthless. Quest for Global Power. The two authors are Justin Scheck and Bradley Hope. We have Justin here today. And uh, Justin is a, well, they're both actually with the Wall Street Journal, I should say. Uh, Justin is based in New York. He worked with the Wall Street Journal since 2007, covering white-collar crime across four continents. He's been writing about Saudi Arabia since 2016. Uh, Justin is a Pulitzer Prize finalist. Welcome to the show. How are you doing, Justin? I'm Well, happy to be here. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. We appreciate that, and congratulations on the new book. This came out, I believe, September first.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks.
0: There you go, and it's uh, definitely topical. We just had the. Uh, we'll get into some of the uh, different news stories, but uh, Justin, if you could give us your plugs, so people can look you up on the interwebs.
1: Yeah. So I, the best place to find the book is, is probably Amazon. Uh, Blood and Oil. Or uh, hashet h a c h e t t e dot com is our publisher, and there's a page there that, that where you can buy it. Uh, also at your local bookstore.
0: Now you cover uh, a lot of Saudi Arabia, uh, like we mentioned for a long time. Uh, what motivated you to write this book about uh, about uh, MBS?
1: So I, I've been based in London. I've been writing about oil and working on various sort of investigative stories for years, and. Um, he spent spent a couple of years on a sort of far flung story about, about the drug trade between India and West Africa and sort of coming out of that, I was, you, know, you leave behind a big project and my editor at the time had said, you know, Saudi Arabia is, is at the cusp of something really, really different. And the news had just come out that this prince who like no one had heard of a year earlier, Mohammed bin Salman, he was the, the son of the new king, wanted to take the Saudi state oil company, which is like the world's biggest company by revenue and probably the world's most profitable company. And he wanted to do an IPO. He wanted to like sell shares of it in the international market. And so, you know, I I had covered energy for years, but really didn't have a history covering Saudi Arabia. And my editor was like, you know, we need some sort of investigative coverage, like digs into like, what is this company and go from there. And I sort of like, you know, kicked in the screen because that's what a reporter does when, when your editor tells you to do something. But, you know, within a couple of weeks, Bradley, who does have more of a history in the Middle East, and I realized there is a really deep and uh, complicated international story to be told. And, you know, we started by, our way in was by looking at the oil company. But, you know, from the company, it's not too far to get to the government and then to the royal family and then to, you know, the, hall, the the halls of the palace where, you know, huge amounts of global power are, you know, fought over by like a few guys. And so so, so we, we were writing for uh, on this for a couple of years and more and more, you know, we got from the company to the government to kind of the, the personal palace intrigue and realized at some point a couple of years ago, like there, there's a book here. This is someone who is taking this insular country and, you know, turning outward and influence. you know, he's he's become a military power and an economic power and an investing power, and it would just sort of kind of happen organically if, if
0: that makes and, sense. And in the book, you pre- you pretty much you, you talk about his childhood, his kind of rise to power, you set the stage of the environment uh, in Saudi Arabia and 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 how he comes uh, pretty much to fruition and then what he's done since then.
1: Yeah. So so the book really starts with this this moment, like, to go back a little bit, to understand who this guy is, you know, a lot of the Saudi princes of his generation, um, the sons of of, of kings or the sons of princes who are close to being king, are educated abroad, you know, in the US or in Europe, and they have these sort of cosmopolitan upbringings. And this guy was educated completely in Saudi Arabia and spent his teenage years by the side of his father, who was governor of Riyadh province, which is the most conservative, traditional part of Saudi Arabia. Or most conservative city. It's the capital. It's the, the family's center of power. So, this guy's the son. He's, you know, a son of the second wife of a prince who seems very unlikely to be king. There's a couple older brothers right in between him and the throne. And he grows up like not, you know, kind of not really expecting that there's any chance he could get near the throne. Then, two of his father's older brothers die fairly unexpectedly. His father is in line to become king next, but is in his 70s. And the older king, um, or the older brother who's king, King Abdullah, dies in, in the end of two thousand fourteen. Now the, the crown's supposed to go to Salman, Prince Salman, Mohammed bin Salman's father. But the sons of Abdullah and the loyalists to, to King Abdullah knew that if Salman became king and Mohammed bin Salman gained power, they'd be cut out. They could lose all their power. They could lose much of their money. There, there could be even worse repercussions for them. So they started trying to undermine Salman. You know, there, were, there were rumors spread on Twitter that, that he had dementia. Um, they tried to sort of engineer some succession plan where the, the crown would go down to one of Abdullah's sons. And all of that failed, uh, largely because Mohammed bin Salman got wind of it and got in the way of it. And then the last ditch effort was to try to prevent him from being in the line of succession, which temporarily worked. You know, when his father became king, the crown prince was another, you know, old man, another brother, and the deputy crown prince was a cousin who was older and had a long relationship with the U.S. And in, in the you know year or so after Salman became king, that was all upended. And you know, in 2017, Mohammed bin Salman, you know, physically imprisoned in a in a in a palace his predecessor as crown prince, you know, in, in the middle of the night and forced the guy to resign so that he could become crown prince. So now, while his father's king he's the, the, he's in line for the throne, but it's really the day to day ruler of the kingdom. And the guy who's making all the big decisions,
0: the prologue of the book starts out with, with how they, how they, how he pulls off that, uh, I guess, semi coup where they, you know, they say, Hey, we, we need you to come back and talk to (laughs) the boss. And, and like, everyone's kind of like about this, but they, he literally sets up these hotels and everything to become prisons. And, it's insane. He's like imprisoning billionaires, people that are used to you know freely going around the world and have all this money, and uh, it, it's quite the operation.
1: Yeah. So, so, Saudi Arabia for generations has been this really ossified, bureaucratic country where old men were in charge, and they were afraid. They were deeply afraid of any change, and, and their fear was that any change at all could lessen the family's, power their grip on the throne and create upheaval that would be bad and so over those those decades as you know the oil industry became bigger and bigger and oil money flooded into the country there was kind of rampant corruption and like their princes would you know bring in kind of well-connected saudi businessmen and bring international businessmen so you know you could get a contract you as an american company could get a contract doing oil field services you have to have like a partner who's a a saudi maybe a prince maybe some well-connected businessman that partner did nothing without a huge amount of money and so there's money kind of leaking out everywhere and nobody did anything about it and one theme with Mohammed bin Salman is that he he is okay with change he wants like if he thinks change needs to be made he wants to do it right now and he's done that in a number of contexts but what he did he he saw corruption as a problem, and and to be you know fair to everyone, we we write in detail about how he has enriched himself uh, to an uh, extravagant level on government money. So he's not against you know I don't think in principle he's against a powerful prince getting rich from the government. He was just against so many people who didn't really have power doing it, and rather than try to you know do the, the sort of the old Saudi way of like, you know, saying, please stop doing this. And like kind of, you know, quietly behind the scenes, trying to wind down the corruption. He, um, in a very effective moment of, of, um, of sort of creative exertion of power, he took the Ritz Carlton, which is, you know, it's a Ritz Carlton. that's built in a, in a building that was built to be a Saudi palace. It's like literally palatial hotel. And he told the Ritz, um, the government's going to need the facility for the time being cancel all reservations. And they changed the, they, they put locks and the, they changed the locks on the doors and he rounded up hundreds of the country's most powerful business people. And some of them were princes. Some of them were independent businessmen. Some of them are, you know, Al Walid bin Talal sort of the headliner. He was this Prince who was, you know, co-owned the four seasons with Bill Gates. You know, he, he was like people of, of international repute and he locked them in hotel rooms and told them, "You will pay back uh, some or all of the money that I say you stole, or you'll. We'll just take everything and put you in prison." And you know, there there were there been reports of torture. There were all sorts of you know, none of it was done in a way that's like there's no there's no precedent. There's there's no like kind of body of law for here's how we deal with corruption in Saudi Arabia. He sort of made it up as he we went along. And the defense that a lot of these men had was. King Abdullah said it was okay, or King Fahd, the king before said 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 it was okay for me, me to do this. And MBS said, well, then it was okay then. Now, now it's it's retroactively not okay. So give me the money back. <laughs> and it, was, it it was a way of like trying to recruit money for the government, but also a way of showing like, basically, like you need to do whatever I say, or else something really bad will happen to you, no matter how powerful you think you are.
0: And this seemed like a real siloing of power. I mean, he—I think in the book you—you meant you say that you know he used it to gain power over different divisions and everything else. I mean, this this seems like a real power C see, seize uh, exactly, on his
1: part. Exactly. And and you know before we get into the questions about you know good or bad or reformer or not reformer that everyone's asking, the main, the most important thing to understand about his early years is that he is better than anyone else at maneuvering within the palace and within the Saudi royal family. And he, out, he outmaneuvered everyone. And, and, so, and largely because he was almost an outsider. He was from a younger generation. What he saw was a system where the sons of the kingdom's founder, his father and three of his father's brothers, basically shared control over the most important government institutions. One prince, who later became king, was in charge of the, the royal guard, which guards the king. Another was in charge of the Ministry of Interior, which is in charge of intelligence gathering and has military capabilities. Another was in charge of the defense ministry, which is the actual military. And another one, his father, was in charge of Riyadh province, which is the center of the, of the coalition between the, the royal family and the religious establishment, which was their, ba- their power base. And he saw that this balance of power may have been good for stability in the past, but if he was going to – he didn't want stability anymore. He wants rapid change. If he was going to do that, he would need to consolidate that and take over each of these things that for decades had been controlled by other branches of the family. And he managed to do that by outmaneuvering by all these people.
0: And and as you mentioned, and it's in the book, I mean, there's a lot of palace intrigue. If you love palace intrigue, this is the book for you because there's just so many players and so many competitions. But what you guys really detail in the book is how one of the things he's really good at is being cunning. I remember Francis Ford Coppola talking about uh, basically, you know, the three sons in the, in the Godfather series. And when you look at Michael Corleone, Michael Corleone's the one who survives because he's the most cunning. And, uh, so, so a lot of it maybe was a balance of seizing power and then enacting reforms. All right. You know, the, the real thing about looking at, uh, at him is the good, bad and ugly. And you you go, okay, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Or is he a mix of both?
1: Yeah. I mean, we keep getting the question. What I tell everyone is I have a a stock answer, which I, I think is actually a good answer. Um which is, I think those questions are, are relevant. And there's so much, is he a reformer or is he a, is he a dictator? You know? And I think a lot of that is not relevant. The, the relevant question, the, the relevant thing to understand is his goal is to maintain power and to maintain his family's control of Saudi Arabia. And I think that's pretty much any monarch has that as, as the big goal. And I, I, to be fair to him, he seems to truly believe that the best thing for Saudi Arabia and the Saudi people is for him to be in power. But, but, but the, the top priority is, is maintaining power, and so anything, everything he does, everything he's done, is with that in mind. So, if you think of him not as you know, he does some things to make him look like a reformer, and other things to make him look like a tyrant. If you think of it as someone whose top priority is maintaining control, then then there's consistency across all of this. So. <laughs> The, the the reforms he's 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 really loosened these social restrictions that have been in place for decades, and they've been framed um, by Western journalists as 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 reforms. He's reforming Saudi Arabia. He's modernizing Saudi Arabia, and I I don't really think that's the way to look at it. Um, first off, I think you know the Saudi Ara- the very kind of restrictive Saudi Arabia is itself a modern creation. It's, it's there was not a precedent for it, but more importantly. Um, the base of power for his family in Saudi Arabia was was the religious establishment. And he, his grandfather conquered the area now known as Saudi Arabia by with a you know a coalition of of the family and their loyalists and the this religious these religious clerics who, who, had, who had fighters. They had fighters in camelback. And for really for hundreds of years the Al-Saud, the family, and this religious establishment were were the the, the kind of joint Power over over the region, and the Al Saud's power came from them. And the family felt his, his you know, the older generations of the family felt like their legitimacy in the eyes of the Saudi people came from their allegiance or their alliance with the with the religious establishment. And Mohammed bin Salman realized that you know that's changed because now Saudi Arabia's population, you know, about sixty percent of the population is under the age of thirty, and they have the world's highest social media saturation. And so he sees, you know, whereas maybe prior generations when it was a country of six million people uh, who were traditional and and pious um, may have said, well, if if the religious establishments are the rulers, then they must be. This younger generation, they're on Twitter and they're on Facebook and they're on Instagram. And all day long, they're looking at their phones and seeing that in other wealthy countries, their peers are going on dates and going to movies and going to concerts. And they weren't allowed. They couldn't do any of those things. There were no cinemas. There, there There was no live music allowed. There were these religious police who, if they saw a woman with ankles showing, would, you know, could arrest her. And he realized, or he, he, he believed or he decided that if this went on, it would lead to great discontent. Also, you know, you couldn't get jobs. It was hard to start a company. And, and he's, he realized that if he wanted legitimacy, his basic power would have to switch from the religious establishment to the country's burgeoning youth population. And so the social reforms have been done with that in mind. Um, Some of the crackdown on dissent, you know, he, he allowed women to drive and locked up the activists who were calling for women to be allowed to drive. Yeah, I was like, and, really? And like, they seem contradictory, but actually they're not. Because allowing women to drive is something to, you know, satisfy the, the people who he needs to be satisfied. And locking up the people who protested the government shows that if you in any way criticize me, you're going to go to jail. And it's all, you know, to the greater end of, of solidifying power.
0: It's a really interesting balance. That's what I think that that makes him most interesting or most curious. That's what I loved about the book and why I think a lot of people try and figure him out. Like Silicon Valley has a huge love affair with him because of the money issue. Um, And you guys talk about this in the book, how they have these huge tech dreams. Uh, It seems like they really want to compete with Dubai and build something bigger and better. Uh, He, you know, he he, they got rid of the... uh, the morality police that were running around, going that skirt's too big, and but like you say, there's that balance of almost like an authoritarian power. It's kind of almost like uh, what Machiavellian, you know, advised in The Prince. You know, where you, you have to be a benevolent uh, king, but then you also have to have an iron fist, and you have to balance the two.
1: Um, yeah, we actually have a scene in the book when he's young and he goes to visit a, a cleric who is now um, who has been sentenced to death in Saudi Arabia. And he, he talks about his, his admiration for Machiavelli, which was wow. Um, yeah, so and, and to be fair, to him, I think this can be seen as his admiration for for the tactical lessons you can learn, not necessarily saying he's unprincipled.
0: Mm.
1: Um, but yeah, you know, there's there's a. I think the best light in which you can look at it to be to be generous is that. Um, let's you know, assume he truly believes the best thing for the Saudi people is that he be in charge to make sure he's in charge. He had to, he, he had to do a lot of things that, you know, in in, in a country like the U S would, would seem um, or iron fisted, as you put it. And, you know, I think one of the, one of the things that I, I is very hard to, to accept um, from, you know, for an American is um the prohibition on, on, criticizing him, and that's not a traditional thing in Saudi Arabia. Historically, Like, you could criticize the monarchy, and he he's realized the power or he believes social media is extraordinarily powerful, and he may think it's more powerful than it really is, but he believes that criticism of him and of his father on Twitter is a huge problem, and he's willing to put people in jail for that. And it's like if
0: Putin and George Washington married or something, I don't know. <laughs> not a kid. It really does seem... Uh, like he's well-balanced. And, and I, I watched him for a long time, not not in the depth that you guys have. But I remember when, after the Khashoggi affair, uh, and then I, I think it was Lindsey Graham was saying he was unstable and he was crazy and he was a madman. Somebody, some, some of our politicians were saying that. And the more I looked at him, the more I was like, I don't think this guy's a madman. You know, he's not running around tooling at the mouth like Donald Trump. He's He's calculated. Like, I can see the cunning and the calculation on him. Like, if I was around him, I don't know, I'd just probably crap my pants the whole time and smile at him and be like, I'm cool with you, man. Don't- no, you yeah, I,
1: mean, I mean? And this is, this is not a secret. Like, you know, over the course of reporting uh, for the Wall Street Journal, we spent time with him. And, and, and you know, your, your, personal, your interaction with someone face-to-face is like, can be, a, it's of limited, it really is of limited value. You don't know what's inside someone, but from all of our work, I've seen no evidence that he's a mad madman. I, I think he's very, um, he's a planner and he, he's organized and he has a very loyal organization of, of people. I mean, one of his greatest strengths and greatest weaknesses is that for years, since before his father was king, he's prized loyalty over anything else. And so the, the people who became closest to him and the people he's most empowered are defined by their loyalty, not necessarily their competence or knowledge or abilities. And so I think the things that have gone wrong and Khashoggi is you no know, obviously, like it's an it's an unspeakably horrible, unacceptable act. But you know, Khashoggi has gone wrong. The, his campaign in Yemen, where they've, they've you know, it's resulted in, in starvation and bombing, you know, schoolchildren and and horrible atrocities. Um, these the, the pro those problems aren't the result of of madness. they're, res, they're the result of like mistakes or, or failures to to do things right they're not they're not necessarily impetuous, so you know from what we could, we've gathered about show me, you know what what m b s says is that he never gave an order to kill him. it was men working for him they they the ones who did the killing and it was unacceptable and you know he he's you know I take responsibility because they were working for me, but i didn't say to kill him. The CIA um determined that he likely gave an order to kill him from what we And we can gather from their reporting and, you know, based on historically Saudi Arabia doesn't kill someone in that situation. Historically Saudi Arabia kidnaps that person and brings it back to the kingdom. And we have a chapter in our book where where the same guy who was in charge of the Khashoggi affair um, engineered the the kidnapping of a prince who'd been criticizing, um, criticizing Salman. And they, they, you know, put him on a plane, and, and this guy, Saouda Khatani, who was working directly for MBS, posed as the plane's captain. And, you know, they, they convinced the guy to get on the plane, and they brought him back to Saudi Arabia. He hasn't been seen since. And so given that that's the way they tend to do things, it seems likely that what happened with Khashoggi is these guys, you know, these guys were told to deal with it. They probably thought they had license to kill him. Maybe they maybe they were given explicit license to kill maybe implicit license to kill him. It seems like most likely they, it was – the plan was to kidnap him and they realized it would be harder than they thought. And so they just decided to kill him in the embassy or in the consulate, you know? So, um, it's hard to tell if there was an explicit order and an implicit order, but whatever it was, these guys were working directly for MBS and they felt like they had a license to kill this guy. So it doesn't really matter what the words were that he said. It matters that, you know, he's, he's ultimately responsible for it. I,
0: I would, I would agree with you. I would say he probably gave the order that said, look, either bring him back and either he walks back or he comes back in pieces. Um, I mean, I kind of look at some, like a lot of these leaders I look at, like I, I've, I've been a CEO of my own company since I was 18. I've had thousands of employees. I look at things as to how I would run things if I ran a, uh, a government. That sounds kind of scary the way I put that doesn't it. Like it's, <laughs> my eyebrows are like, I would run things. Um, but no, I, it's, it's, it's interesting to me. I can see the intimidation tactic of it. Um, the, uh, I, I believe if I recall the reporting correctly, uh, MBS was was surprised at the blowback, or the Saudis were.
1: Well, yeah, I think they were because I think, I think the way they saw it initially was he's a Saudi citizen. Um, it's you know if, if if I mean one one way to, and I, I hesitate to draw parallels, but one way to to understand how they look at it is. If we find there's a KGB agent in America, a Russian KGB agent in America, we send him back home. We deport the guy. But if we find there's an American working for the KGB, then it's treason. And the person gets tried and in, in prison. And so it's the, the difference is, is that they they say this is a Saudi. and And for them, he was also someone who was intimately... Uh, connected to the royal family. He'd been working. He worked as a spokesman for the Saudi uh, embassy in the in the U.S. and in the U.K. He was sort of of the royal court, so they saw this as one of their own who was now in America, making them look bad uh, to the, the citizens of-, of of Saudi Arabia's biggest ally. But he was a Saudi, and so they could do as they wished with him. And so I think they were surprised that there was this incredible blowback. Um, where the, the world kind of rallied, why did you kill an independent journalist? Well, he's not an independent journalist, he's a Saudi guy who was criticizing us. And I think, you know, we, one, you know we, we mentioned in the book that, you know, MBS said to, to a person um, at, who was asking about this, like, he said, like, oh, look at this, now the world, the world sees me as a journalist killer, the world sees me as a murderer, this is horrible. You know, I think he, even if that's what he is, he doesn't want to be seen as that. And I, I think, you know, sort of, to go back, you know, just, you're talking about being the CEO of your own company, you are bound by the rules of America, the laws of America. He's in a monarchy, like he doesn't really have any laws or rules that apply to him. And anomaly there are, but really like the king is the state and he's kind of making up his own rules. And I think through some of these, through Khashoggi and other things, it's been sort of a harsh lesson that like, oh, the rest of the world has these rules that they get very, very angry if I break.
0: Yeah. I think one of the miscalculations was uh well there was there were some factors to it and I'm not dismissing the horror and the and the wrongness of it but there were some factors to it one of them was the um uh, just the grotesque uh way that it went down uh the the dismembering of him uh being able to get the audio of the uh, of what went on uh it it was it was it was stomach turning and then you know the guys the uh, Washington Post journalist so I mean you know you you just took on the Washington Post and probably yes. every journalist and press journalist in the world it, he might have been a lot better off if they just kidnapped him and thrown him in a car and brought him back and and uh, they probably would have a whole lot less follow-up but the grisly details were what yeah. really that just re- like, that got everybody that got me especially when you listen to the tape you realize his the 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 scenario of his his impending uh, wife sitting up front, waiting for him, innocently thinking, "Oh, he's going to come out. And we're going to get married." And you're just like, "Oh my god!" The horror of, and then to find out later what's going on. Uh, I mean, so yeah, like I think, like you say, uh, maybe unintended consequences, but but still, yeah, finding out, you know, finding out what's going on in the world. Back but, but
1: on the theme of like sort of, uh, prizing loyalty over over aptitude. Everything you you talked about here, the reason that stuff came out is his team after the murder um, the Saudis were badly outmaneuvered by the turks in in <laughs> so first off they didn't, they don 't realize they don't realize that their concept is bugged right How do you not i mean whoever whether you know whether the bugs were were Turkish or some other country they don 't realize it's bugged, number one number two n MBS seemed to think that he he could kind of, there was no way the Turks were going to, in any way, like, kind of gain a a foothold over him. And what the Turks did is, you know, there had been tension between Turkey and Salman and MBS. And and Erdogan, the president of Turkey, I think, had wanted better relations, and it was pretty tense. And so Turkey tried to use this as sort of a way of like, look, why don't you, you know, there's some things you could do for us. Like do these things, we'll like kind of help, you know, keep us quiet. And the Saudis wouldn't cooperate. So Turkey kept leaking out little bits. You know, there was a quarter of the <laughs> tape, and then more detail on the audio. And it would seem like every day for several weeks, it looked worse and worse and worse because the Turks were really good at at outmaneuvering them. But you know, it seemed like the Turks' goal was to try to get Salman, the king, to kind of take some power away from MBS to, to push him aside. And I think in in the the eyes of the world, the Turks won by kind of exposing this horror and making MBS look look like a murderer. But ultimately, um, they lost because he has more power than ever. And yeah. so, and that's the other things. MBS is playing a long game where right now it looks really bad. And like in in an electoral in a democracy, we elect the president. This would be you know. This is a horrible scandal, but he's looking, you know, 40 or 50 years down the road. And so MBS is, he could be king for 50 years. So, you know, I I think that um, he can lose and sometimes still win.
0: Yeah. It's interesting what they can do in that country too, as well. Uh, You saw right away, they started buying the, um, I think at one point they were kind of pseudo holding hostage one of uh, Khashoggi's children. And then they pretty much bought the family off. Um, and uh, I don't know how I feel about that. I remember reading the stories going, I don't know how you feel if you offer me 10 million and you killed my dad, but I don't know, we can talk about it. Um, but I mean, I guess that once the tragedy has happened, it is what it is. But I think at one point they were they were kind of holding someone in Saudi Arabia, uh, kind of like a like, kind of one of the palatial things. I was going to make a joke earlier, too, about the guys who got stuck at the Ritz Carlton. They should at least be glad they didn't get stuck at Motel 6. So, you know, they're no, 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 no. I
1: mean, going <laughs> you know?
0: But your book is really timely. Saudi Arabia just handed handed down the final ruling, so I'm going to put that in quotes, in uh, Jamal Khashoggi's murder, uh, sentencing eight to prison terms. And a lot of the death penalties that were going to be pending on these guys were downgraded because. Uh, the family, you know, got paid and said and gave them forgiveness. I guess and that's the whole. Th- it's a really freaking weird setup because you're just in, in the like,
1: justice system, right. Then the justice system there has a provision for you know, like blood money, where if you have a family member who's murdered, um, you can reach an agreement with the the murderer to pay you some money and you know either get off or or, or not be killed or have lesser charges, and it's it's very foreign to us you know um it's also again a place where i think, I think some of the rules or the laws are maybe not are often you know interpretations of islamic law it's not like here like the laws are a little more clear like you look at your state laws uh, the sentencing guidelines and it's not like that
0: yeah the um and what's interesting is i was just reading too i, I can't remember who reported it, it might have been wapo uh, they're reporting that there was a huge ramp up, but I think you like you say, he's won in the end because um I don't know if he'll fully ever recover from the Khashoggi killings. Uh but uh but it definitely sends a message to your enemies. Like, don't don't screw with me, man. You'll you'll end up Yeah,
1: intentional or not, it's a very a very clear message and yeah, I agree. I mean it's hard to imagine I and mean, that'll always be a stain for him. Yeah. Um partially because of the brutality, but partially because of the the asymmetry between what the guy was doing and, and what, what was done to him. You know, he was like, he was criticizing. People get, people criticize people every day, and then he gets head chopped off. You know, so, um, yeah, I, I, I agree, but it it does send the message. I think it's very clear to people in Saudi Arabia right now, and it, as we've written in some cases, people outside Saudi Arabia, like some of these dissidents who had their Twitter accounts hacked and were, had action taken against them, that, um, you know, it's it can be very unsafe to to question him, even gently.
0: Yeah. Um, You know, recently, and I think you guys cover this in the book, he goes to war with Russia over oil, and oil prices and oil control, doesn't he?
1: I mean, this is one of the kind of, like, stunning world events that we've all forgotten about in the COVID times. But, yeah, he – and it's another one of these sort of, you know, maybe giant miscalculations, but – uh, for several years, you know, the price of oil has been depressed for, you know, 2014 and for several years Russia and the OPEC countries, which is basically Saudi Arabia is most important, had this agreement that they were going to keep the the keep oil production down to keep the price up. And it's this kind of different, like it's just like tough situation because what everyone wants is for everyone else to, to produce less oil and make it sell more oil. And so, you know, like, the, the negotiations are always hard, but um, things got tense with Russia and it is consolidation of power. MBS put one of his older brothers in charge of the oil ministry in Saudi Arabia. So he has, you know, he has a brother who is our half brother, who who's in charge of oil in the past. It was always, you know, a, a non-royal. And so they got frustrated with Russia and decided, you know, we've had enough of haggling with Russia over trying to keep oil production low. We're, we can, weather low oil prices much better than they can. So we're going to screw them and we're just going to flood the world with oil. And so Saudi Arabia, like, you know, increased the production of oil, like drove the price down. It's a record oil price fall. And I think sort of miscalculated how, um, how Putin would react. And you know, I, think, I think Putin and MBS are similar in the sense that it's very hard to pressure either of them. Like when you try to back either of them into a corner, they, they, there's never any backing down, and you know Putin didn't back down. And eventually, they all had to kind of you know reach an agreement and come back to it. But yeah, they out of out of um, a combination of, of anger and an expectation to be able to pressure Russia, they like tanked the world oil price, put a bunch of American fracking companies on the on the, the brink of extinction, and you know, had all sorts of of collateral effects that were not like of concern to them.
0: Who actually won that battle? Because I mean, I know. Putin basically sits on a giant gas station. That's pretty much the Russian economy.
1: Yeah, I know. I mean, it's, it's such a hard question because, again, like, you know, Putin's old and, uh, you know, when Putin's gone, who knows what happens in Russian politics. But MBS is young. He, once he becomes king, he could reign for decades. But also, he has his family's, uh, he has like, the family rule at heart. So he's looking much further down the road. So in the short term, it doesn't really look like Saudi Arabia won because they... They gave up a lot of money. They, they, they sold something that they could sell for a lot of money, for very little money, in, in huge volumes, um, to reach a political a short-term political goal that they appear to have not reached. But in the long run, um, maybe there's value in showing the world. like you know, look, Something to understand since the 70s, like one of the sort of tacit foundations of the American-Saudi alliance is that Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia will not screw with world oil supply. You know, since the oil embargo, um, the U.S. has – the U.S. was very dependent on Middle Eastern oil, no longer is, but the idea was like Saudi Arabia is going to keep pumping oil no matter what political issues there are. And one message MBS is sending is like, you know what, I, I'm willing to screw with oil prices. I'm willing to, to upend the oil market in furtherance of, of my goals. And that's a message, you know, similar to the Khashoggi thing, that like you're communicating something to the rest of the world that could be of value for decades.
0: Do you guys get in the book we had uh, yesterday? We had on uh, Seth Abramson, uh, Proof of Corruption, his third book in the trilogy, uh, and we talked a little bit about uh, the the Saudis' interest in nuclear power plants with the Trump administration, Jared Kushner, and of course they, I believe they want they they got some of the nuclear technology that puts them on the precipice of becoming nuclear power if they if they gear their stuff right.
1: Yeah, some of my colleagues at the journal have written recently that, that they're they're working on some uh non public nuclear projects. And so far it looks like power generation, but you know, like their biggest fear is Iran. You know, it, it's it's nearby and they uh. are long standing enemies. And when you talk to people in the Saudi Royal Court or in the UAE, their ally, they speak of the Persians. They don't talk about Iran, they talk about the Persians as if, you know, it's it's um People, you know, a people with a history of having an empire that's long been at odds with the Arabs, and, and so they see it as this like deep historical, uh, uh, a deep historical enmity, and the idea that Iran has nuclear weapons and Saudi Arabia is somehow at a disadvantage is like intolerable for them. You know, so I think that it, it's it's hard to imagine they wouldn't be pursuing that.
0: Yeah. And, and, and I guess there's some details that go into that. I mean, we recently saw, I, I watched a video, I think last night, where it was Jared Kushner with his punchable face, I should mention. Um, very punchable face. Not that I would punch his face, but I'm just saying it's a very punchable face. Um, he always reminds me of that act, act dude from Martians uh, will invade or whatever. Um, but uh, he, they were on the flight, that first flight that now goes directly from Saudi Arabia to, I believe, Israel and uh so that was kind of interesting
1: yeah i mean i think kushner kushner showed up what to do the flight so uae recognized israel and which is which is a big it's more symbolic than anything outside like you know there was this like long-standing war between the you know united arab emirates and israel is but you know uae is saudi arabia's closest ally in the region and uae recognized israel and in the, that first flight um it flew through Saudi airspace, and Kushner went over there. And in a way, this this is you know I think the Trump administration is framing it as a, like a giant foreign policy win for the U.S. I think what it looks like is the UAE in a way was sort of sending out like a trial balloon um, to to kind of see what reaction is in in the Gulf region, um, and if it's not too you know if it wasn't too negative a reaction I think you know Saudi Arabia would consider following partially because they really have um, softened their approach to Israel because you know a generation ago the Palestinian cause was of, of deep importance to the Saudis and they, I think they got frustrated with you know with the Palestinians I think they sort of lost interest and at the same time MBS has embraced Israeli um, military and like intelligence technology and there's been this sort of not-so-private private relationship between Saudi Arabia and Israel um, about sharing technology. And as we write in the book, you know, some, one of MBS's big projects. This is a sort of city-state he's going to build from scratch in the Northwest. It's quite close to Israel, and they've had talks about bringing Israeli technology in there. So the idea of formalizing the relationship in the historical context sounds, like, insane and, and unthinkable, but really it wouldn't be that different from the status quo right now. And it would also, if it came before the election, be, you know, Something that Donald Trump could say, like, "Look, you know, look, look what I had to show. I, I, got Saudi Arabia to come to peace with Israel after all these decades. So it could be like a big kind of pre-election boost for him.
0: Maybe we can have one of those Clinton moments where Assad or was it Assad and uh, who was it? Oh, I forget the gentleman's name. I think he was assassinated, but they shook on the White House lawn. if you remember that moment? It was like the biggest farce ever. Um, the uh, uh, it wasn't Assad." Uh, I don't know. I don't remember. Uh, the old brain's going in the old age. Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. Maybe they see Iran as like maybe we should just be better friends with Israel because we got we got Iran to deal with. Did you get that, Justin? Uh, the uh, maybe. So I think the audio broke up. So maybe they just see uh, Iran as a bigger enemy than Israel.
1: Exactly. That's precisely it. I mean. That's sort of what in in MBS's view of, of the world, Israel isn't isn't Israel is not an enemy. Israel is someone with historical tension. Israel an enemy, but Iran's the biggest enemy, and Iran is Israel's biggest enemy. And um, you know, the enemy of my enemy is is and has become a much more powerful thing. That now that you know, the Saudi Iran tension is, is 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 much more. Um, kind of visceral than it was before. You know, the, the Saudi bombing campaign in Yemen is is sort of a proxy war with Iran. So it's just become a, a lot. Um, Iran has become much more a priority than Israel.
0: There you go. That's a, I love how you said that. The enemy of my enemy. Uh, it, it, was there anything that surprised you in the book that stood out that you went, holy moly? I mean,
1: a lot. Like uh, that's one of the reasons we wrote the book is because like every, like everything was really surprising. Um, you know, but one thing that we've written about and talked about a lot is this, you know, he has this like $500 billion plan to build a city state in the Red Sea with flying robot taxis and bring sort of international tech companies there. But And, and that was surprising in sort of its like, superficial details. But the, the thing that was really shocking about that to me is that it, it sort of outlined this vision, what his vision is for, for Saudi Arabia. So this is, um, Going to be a place where it has its own governance system, where every aspect of governance reports to him. The courts, law enforcement, everything reports up up to MBS. And there's you know hundred percent surveillance of everyone there at all times. He wants an international population of, of highly educated people working in tech. He wants to have like world class resorts and industry and living, and he kind of wants it all in the same place. And it it shows this vision that it has for Saudi Arabia, which is a place that simultaneously, you know, has the trappings of, of freedom with the security of like an iron-fisted monarchy. And it's something that is, you know, hasn't, I mean, maybe China is even the model. China doesn't have the oil money. China doesn't have that incredible, you know, per capita wealth. But it's a model where you kind of have, the freedom to make money and the freedom to, you know, eat out at a nice restaurant and to take a flying robot taxi, but you don't have to say in your own governance, right. There's no, there's been no, um, move to, to sort of give the Saudi people their own, um, any, any like self-determination. And to <laughs> me, that's continually surprising, even though it's like the most basic defining factor there.
0: He's like, Putin, who cares and has empathy, wants something better for his country in the future. But he's still Putin. Kind of like a mix of all this stuff. So, uh, any any last things we need to know about your guys' great book?
1: Um, yeah, look, you know, I think I, something I think that we often lose sight of. We, meaning Bradley and I, when you're talking about it is there's I, to us at least the story is so interesting, like the palace intrigue and what happens within Saudi Arabia, the decisions he makes to to do things, but um he's an incredibly important person internationally, especially in, in, well, you know, in in sort of the geopolitics, but in business and in America as well. And that's, you know, another one of the most surprising things is, you know, his vision for Saudi Arabia is to move the country away from its dependence on oil and create a diversified economy. And he thinks one way to do that is to invest billions and billions and billions of dollars in international tech companies. So he's the world's biggest venture capitalist and, a lot of this tech bubble we see, where you know dog walking companies are getting tens of millions of dollars and work for dogs, like you know, so things that you look at and you're like, like, are you assuming that like, 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 like an unending, infinite growth in the number of dogs and people who will pay a lot? Like, you know, these things are like on the surface, like the value doesn't work out. That bubble is being pumped up with with, with saudi money so so many of these things we've seen in america especially in california with these insane tech valuations and we work is probably the poster child these companies that like you can't understand why they're so valuable but all of a sudden they're everywhere they're in our face it's MBS's sort of this belief that if he takes a huge amount of money and like says we're going to innovate we're going to make a lot of money that it can happen that's what's behind it and that's something that i think is like important to remember
0: yeah, it's it's really interesting to watch because my background is you know Silicon Valley and tech and and what we've always done on the show. Um, I believe he owned a lot of investment into SoftBank and of course SoftBank's crazy investments, especially with like I mentioned, before, WeWork
1: over over forty billion dollars. into the SoftBank fund called the Vision Fund that is you know they're the ones that boosted WeWork And it was clear that it was an office <laughs> was rental company. They decided it was a tech company, and we know what happened there. And so yeah, you know it was it's his. His, willi- his willingness to make these gigantic financial bets, without like a whole lot of due diligence, that that's that is like, has kind of had profound economic effects.
0: Yeah, I, I I really see him as a really smart guy. I don't see him as a crazy madman. I see him as as calculating. Uh, maybe he's cunning when he needs to be. I I think I I like what he's doing for Saudi Arabia. It seems to be bringing in the world. You know, people aren't throwing rocks as much uh, at like well women can't drive and they don't have rights and and so and i think he sees too as, as not only that's a good thing but it helps him retain power because we've seen the arab spring you know uprisings that that overthrew a lot of these autocrats they're like you can't have anything and i get everything and you know he realizes much like the machiavellian prince that uh, you've got a balance you've got to somehow create a balance uh, between the two Uh, I I think I wish the uh, war in Yemen would stop, or at least the Trump administration would help stop it, which they won't. But uh, uh, that's a whole new bag of whatever. (laughs) There you go. Um, Guys, pick up the book. It's available now from Amazon and other uh, resources, uh, Blood and Oil. Mohammed bin Salman's Ruthless Quest for Global Power by Bradley Hope and Justin Sheck, who's been here with us today. Um, I, I, uh, I love the book. I mean, getting to understand this guy, and this guy's young. He's going to be a player in the world for the next, I don't know, 70 years or whatever. Uh, anything more you want to give us your plugs as we go out, Justin? No, no, no
1: that's it. No, I, I, there's much more in the book. Uh, yeah. I, thank you so much for having me on. This, this has been enjoyable.
0: Thank you. It's been a wonderful discussion, too, to get into this guy because I, I just find him curious and, and more leaders. And, of course, I'm probably going to have to live with him, and, and hopefully I stay on his nice side.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Chris. I appreciate you it. And I.
0: Thank you very much, Justin. Thanks, my audience, for tuning in. Be sure to see the video version. Of this uh, you, I think you will like it. YouTube.com forward slash Chris Voss hit that bell notification for the show to your friends, neighbors, relatives, dogs, cats, mistresses, pool boys. Get them watching and listening to the show because – I don't know, they'll be better uh, off in life and smarter because of it. Uh, Order the books. You can go to Amazon.com forward slash shop, forward slash Chris Voss, and click on all the wonderful books you are like. Hey, I want to see all the great authors who have been on the Chris Voss show, and I want to support them, and I want to buy their amazing books. You can easily do that through that link. Uh, We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Uh, Be sure to uh, subscribe, and we'll see you guys next time.